The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. And thought, man, what's different about them than me? If you're like me, a lot of times I conclude they're just a whole lot smarter. But that's not always the case. There are things in all of our lives that formulate us and and bring us to a point where our character is molded and formed. And this is what's really important for you and I to know about Joseph. You see, Joseph's family, he, he had a very unique family because he had parents who loved him deeply. And that was a wonderful thing. He also had a very dysfunctional family with brothers that hated him. And I don't know how you grew up this morning, whether you grew up in a dysfunctional family or a family that was full of love and compassion, but Joseph experienced all of it. And so what I think is important for you and I this morning is to take a look at Joseph in his very early years and try to find out what was it that formulated this man to become the man he was and how can I resonate with some of these things. Our story begins in Genesis chapter 37, and I want to begin this week at verses 3 and 4. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, the story of Joseph begins with a statement, these are the generations of Jacob. Of course, Jacob being his father in Genesis 37, 2. The first part of the sentence should be familiar to anyone who has studied Genesis for any length of time. For it is the 11th time this phrase has occurred in Genesis. It also is the last time it will occur. And these phrases mark the significant divisions in the book of Genesis. So the statement of Genesis 37 really introduces us into the last section of this book. Now, at the risk of sounding academic here for a couple of minutes, it is a characteristic of these phrases that in the course of the unfolding of Genesis, a mere historical sequence of names gives way to parallel presentations. That is the progression from Adam to Noah, to Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, gives way to contrasts between Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It, in general, on the one hand, and Shem, the son through whom the promised redeemer would come. Now, similarly, we have a parallel account of the descendants of Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And then right up to verse uh, chapter 36 at this point in Genesis, there is an obvious contrast between the descendants of Esau, enumerated in Genesis 36, and the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, which concludes the book. Now, this is a massive distinction here, and where we're going with this. On the one hand, there are numerous sons, families, chiefs, and kings that come from Esau all the hosts and powers of the Edomian nation. Genesis 36 lists five sons of Esau, 27 chiefs, and eight kings. On the other hand, the account of Jacob begins, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old. Now, 
If we were to choose as the world chooses, which of us would not stand with the line of kings, uh, a rising power of the Edomites? Great leaders, great kings, powerful nation, who wouldn't pick them? Yet, this is not the choice that God made. Let the world have its kings. The choice of God was with the family of Jacob. And the hope of salvation of the family was with a 17-year-old, Joseph. The chiefs of Edom were numerous and wealthy. Joseph was godly. The kings of Edom were powerful. Joseph had his eyes on God. And that reality ought to speak volumes to you and I. Because the men and women God uses are those who are surrendered to God. Those who choose to live their lives according to his will. It is along, along these lines that Jacob's seed and through the instrumentality of God that he chose to bring forth the future Savior. Only one more time in the Bible is that phrase used in Numbers 3 verse 1 until it's used in Matthew 1 verse 1 to introduce the next generation of believers through Christ. Gen uh, Matthew 1.1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we know where the line is going. We have an understanding of how God is leading right down through this line. So what do we know about Joseph? What was it in Joseph's childhood that molded him to be used by God? It's important for us to understand what sets this whole story of Joseph in motion. What was the life like for Joseph that turned him to be a man of God? What principles did Joseph have that you and I can cling to and lock down in our own lives? Because the reality is, Joseph, though living in a different time, was no different than you and I. His upbringing went through the same things you and I go through. Everything from a dysfunctional family to loving parents and on and on. So what was it that made Joseph who he was? Well, Joseph, the one who was to be used so wonderfully in preserving his family and others during the Great Famine, is introduced to us as a 17-year-old boy. And though his story begins at this point, we already know something about the formative years of his childhood. Joseph was the first son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, for whom Jacob had been willing to work 14 years for. Jacob had one other wife and two concubines, his wife's servants, but he had not chosen them. And you see, Jacob apparently loved her at first sight when he met her at the well of Haran after he crossed the desert in Canaan to, in his flight from Esau. But boy, if ever there is a picture of a beautiful love story, this is it. Because he loved Rachel with all his heart. And so as her father cut a deal with him. He said, you want to marry Rachel? Then work for me for seven years. Now, how many of you men would take that deal? He loved her. He willingly worked the seven years. But if you know the story, when it came time to be married, at that time, the brides were veiled. 
And the father slipped in the older daughter, Leah. And he married the wrong one. Terrible. But he said, all right, if you want Rachel, you got to work seven more years. But here's where you understand the beauty. And if ever there was a basis for a good romance novel, this is it. Because Jacob said, or, or uh, yeah, Jacob said in Genesis 29, 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. But doesn't that make you women feel really good? I mean, this is a love, a deep, deep love. But now you understand the picture of why Joseph was so cherished by his father. He was so cherished by his father because he was the fruit of this compassionate love that Jacob had for his wife. Uh, there would be conflicts with Laban, his domineering grandfather. Then the renewed anxiety when news came that Esau, his father's brother, was coming with 400 soldiers. He would have remembered how afraid he was when everyone was sent ahead, perhaps to, to the death, and he was left behind only with his mother. His father remained behind to pray, and unbeknownst to Joseph, wrestled with God all night. On the next day, Jacob limped across the river to lead his family to Esau, and Joseph must have been impressed. I can hear Joseph asking, why the limp? What happened? And then his father would share how all night the angel of God wrestled him into submission. What an impression these things must have had on young Joseph. How real God must have seemed to Joseph. Seeing his father submit to God. And parents, it begs the question, do your kids see you submit to God? Could God be wrestling you into submission? The one thing we must realize about Joseph's formative years, this was not a godly family. Oh, he had parents that loved him, and at least, but his brothers were anything but godly. Joseph would have seen their rough ways and looked on with amazement as the story of their murder of the Shechemites unfolded. Shechem, the son of Humer, had violated Joseph's sister, Diana, and the brothers had used a ruse to destroy the entire people. And Jacob said in Genesis 34, 30, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But here's what he did. Immediately after this, Jacob took his family to Bethel, where God had first appeared to him when he was running from his brother Esau. And in Genesis 35, verses 2 and 3, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel. 
so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Joseph, once again, sees his father turn to God in a time of trouble. Imagine that. Scary times, threatening times, life-changing times. But he sees his father submit to God. Joseph was about 13 at this time, and he must have been profoundly impressed as Jacob showed him the spot where God met them and led the family as they entered into a new covenant with a covenant-keeping God. One commentator writes this, It may be that this was the turning point of his life. Such events make deep impressions on young hearts as they stood together on that hallowed spot and heard again the oft-told story and clasped each other's hands in solemn covenant. The other sons of Jacob may have been unmoved spectators. But there was a deep response in the susceptible heart of the lad who may have felt, this God shall be my God forever and ever. He shall be my guide even unto death. So these things are all happening in the life of Joseph to have a profound effect on his character and his way of thinking and his heart. But there are more events that take place. Shortly after this, there were three deaths that shook the family. First, Deborah, Rebecca's aged nurse, died and was buried under the great oak tree in Bethel. She had been a link to the past when Joseph's grandmother, Rebecca, had come across the desert to marry Isaac. Second, his own mother, the love of Jacob's life, passed. Rachel was expecting another child, but the birth was so difficult that Rachel died shortly after Benjamin was born. Joseph gained a brother who he loved desperately, but he lost the most important person in his life. He lost a very deep influence in his growing up years. A short while later, a third death occurred. Isaac, Joseph's grandfather, died and was buried in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, where Abraham, Sarah, and Rebekah had been buried before him. This was the tomb of the patriarchs. And this must have had a profound effect on him because 27 years later, he would return to bury his own father, Jacob. So these events made Joseph what he was. What events are making you what you are? We can never exaggerate the importance of childhood events. So whenever it is within our power, we must see that these events and inducements to godliness that they draw us to God, and that we always respond in a godly, responsible character, especially before our children. Godliness, sovereignty, ought to rule who we are. And that transforming reality has a profound effect, not only on our children, but on the people around us. What we say and how we react has a profound effect on our children. It has a profound effect on our church. Character is formed at a young age. And who knows but that God is forming the character of tomorrow's Christian leader right in your very own home now. 
What's to say that God isn't forming the character of young and old in our church at this very moment? And young people, what is happening in your life today that is forming you to take the place in God's leadership in the future? Do you have an upside-down home? Do things seem out of control? Could you be in God's schoolhouse being prepared for the future? We adults have responsibility to these youths to train them up to recognize the voice of God. Now, we may do wonderful things and extracurricular things and sports and dance and all these, and they're wonderful. They they're, have a very positive effect, and we spent years in the midst of that, and I highly recommend it. But what are we doing within our homes to develop our children to be leaders in God's plan? And don't think that if you have a dysfunctional family that God is not at work because Joseph had a very, very troubled family. The story of Joseph being hated and sold into slavery by his brothers begins with the story of his dreams and in Genesis 37, verse 5. But even before this, there was trouble. The problem is that Joseph was his father's favorite son. And this has been interpreted by some commentators as improper favoritism. But that's not where the problem lied. Earlier in Genesis 35, we're told of Reuben, Jacob's oldest, born in, in Genesis 35, 22. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. This was an offense for which Reuben lost his father's uh, first place. He lost his father's favor, and he lost his birthright as the firstborn son. And since Reuben had forfeited his rights, Jacob exercised his sovereign choice and appointed Joseph his heir. And this is the true meaning of what we have long called Joseph coat of many colors. Now, you've probably heard about that coat since you were a youth. And I may pop your bubble here on some of your stories, so hopefully you will, you will be patient and understand. Because, you see, <clears throat> the coat of many colors is an unfortunate mistranslation. And here's why. The Hebrew words that are translated are generally thought to be uncertain, since the key word kethnoth for tunic is followed by the word pasim, which should mean ankles or wrists. Now, down through the generations, as things were translated, it was assumed that this coat was just a better coat, a nicer coat, and therefore it, you know, the brothers hated him. But, but here's the true meaning of that. It is more likely that the word should be taken literally. Namely, that Joseph's coat extended to his wrists and his two ankles. Now you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, you have to understand that most tunics were sleeveless and only came to the knees. And they were worn predominantly by the working class. People who worked in the fields and stonemasons and various things, and they were sleeveless and only came to the knees so they wouldn't get in the way of the laborer's work. And you see, the only ones that wore full tunics to the wrist and the ankles were the ones who didn't do common labor. They were the managers. 
the overseers. And when these brothers saw Joseph coming with that kind of coat on, it was a symbol to them that Jacob had put them, him, Joseph, in charge of his brothers. And that's what really enraged him. That was the thing that really got them angry. This is also uh, the explanation of the notion that Joseph brought a bad report to his brothers, verse 2. It's been construed as tattling, which we don't like. But in actuality, Joseph, as a manager, was to bring a report to his father, and he brought a clear report of what was going on, and it wasn't a good report. Now, there's another detail of why the brothers hated him so much. There's very little mentioned about Joseph in the New Testament. In fact, only four verses. But one of them tells us a fact that we wouldn't normally get from the Genesis account. In John chapter 4, in the middle of the account, there is Jesus, where Jesus is dealing with the woman of Samaria at Jacob's well near Sychar. We are told in John chapter 4, in verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. So the, not only uh, the, gra- or the, the only ground that we know Jacob owned was right here in this area. Genesis 33, 19 says, And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. So we see that Joseph got the land, And so this justified favoritism fueled the brother's hatred. He got the inheritance. He was the boss. Everything about Joseph just flew in the face of the brothers. And they hated him. And that's why Genesis 37, 4 says, But when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all these, his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So what we recognize here about this is not just a sibling rivalry. This really means that the brothers hated Joseph because he was not like him. They stood for treachery, murder, and incest. He stood for truth. And as long as he was present, his virtue exposed their vice. And in the end, they determined to rid themselves of this. You see, when Joseph was around, the brothers were convicted. Righteousness always makes sin uncomfortable. And in fact, it's fascinating, going through research this week, I came across a statement that Martin Luther had written. Martin Luther, of course, the the founder of the Great Reformation, lived from 1483 to 1546. And back then, he wrote a long ago about this tendency and just see if what Martin Luther wrote doesn't resonate with us today. Listen how practical this is for today. Martin Luther wrote, The same perversity is also today running through the ranks of the church, the state, and the home. For all men are grumbling against those who remind them of what is right, And they are indignant against those who reprove faults, sin, even enormous public sin. One must not oppose anyone, but allow everyone to do what he likes, they say. 
On the other hand, those who are modest and remain within the limits of duty and the law are regarded with hatred by all. The very same thing happened to excellent Joseph in the house of Jacob. You see, the dates change and the times change, but it's the same old sin. Righteousness has no fellowship with darkness. Light has no fellowship with darkness. And when righteousness is around, unrighteousness seeks to eliminate it. And it's been the same since the beginning of man. Joseph was truly hated. But you know, we can say the same thing of Jesus, of whom Joseph is a type. Jesus, too, was loved by his father. He, too, stood for truth. He was the heir of vast domains of his father. But in spite of the beauty, joy, love, peace, and integrity that were always transparent in his speech and his actions, he was hated by his own and eventually given over to death at their hands. Just as those who hated Joseph tried to do the same thing. You see, the pattern is clear. And what we begin to realize this morning is that everything that Joseph went through as a young man molded him to the plan God had for him. And you may be here today and you've never really thought back at your former life. Maybe you haven't thought that far back and began to think of things that were molding you, things that were cultivating a spirit within you that God would use. It could be great experiences. It could be bad experiences. It could be God's righteousness working in a wonderful way. It could be trials that you've experienced, bad decisions, bad situations, wonderful things. But whatever it is, you and I have to realize, as Joseph did, that God works all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And I know that oftentimes we just can't see any good in the things that happen to us. But if you are truly a born-again child of God this morning, God's hand is on your life. And God is planning a direction for you to use you, to make you a fragrant blossom for his glory. But far too often we get beaten down and just go into a shell and just try to get through life as best we can, never realizing that the hand of God is on us. Joseph experienced tremendous amount of influences, good or bad. You and I today have the word of God. You and I today have the spirit of God indwelling us. You see, in Joseph's case, the spirit never indwelled. It came upon them for task and to guide them. You and I have the indwelling spirit. And the Holy Spirit longs to guide us into all truth. In writing to the exiled Jews, Jeremiah wrote this in Jeremiah 29. And I'm sure you're very familiar with verses 11 through 13. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. 
You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, we're not exiled Jews. This was written to exiled Jews. But here's the important thing. God's principles never change. Hebrews tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you and I can look at these verses and understand that the same God who had these penned to his, his people is the same God who wants to do the same thing in you and I. The works are different. The tasks may be different. But his focus is the same. His goal was to make Israel a people that glorified him and drew others to him. And that's what he's doing to you and I today. To make us a people that will draw others to him and bring glory to him. So when he says, when you seek me with all your heart, this is a committed heart. This is a surrendered heart. This is a faithful heart. In other words, God wants to accomplish one very key important thing in your life. He has a plan for you. He wants to guide you. But I can simplify this by giving you one key plan he has for your life that you can grasp right now. And here's what it is. His goal for your life is to be a faithful man or woman. Let's just simplify it. I know we look at, well, what should I do? Where's my future? What does he want me to do? What ministry? What job? Okay, that's all important. But let's simplify it this morning. And let's bring it down to the one key reality. His goal for your life is faithfulness. Faithfulness to him so he can use you to train up your children in the way that they should go. If you're single, his purpose for you is to train you to influence others for him, to be able to use you where he has placed you. If you're older and married and been through it all and life just seems to be on the downward tread, maybe life is just beginning. Maybe life is just getting going. Maybe the encumbrances of life have been taken away and now you can really focus on him because it doesn't matter if you're 8 or 80, God is going to use you. And one of the things you and I need to do as we go through this, this story of Joseph over the next few weeks is to recognize that no matter what situation he was in, God was preparing him for a very important role. And as I said last week, I doubt any of us here will be a prime minister. And we're probably not going to save millions of people from famine. But whatever God has for you is just as important to him as it was to those Israelites. The question for you and I this morning is, are we willing to be his surrendered child? Are we willing to cast all our cares upon him? Are we willing to say, God, you know, I've got this going on. I've got that going on. Where I stand right now, I don't know how you could ever use me. But I'm going to trust you and give it all to you and let you do with me whatever you choose. That is step one 
in the life that brings glory to God Almighty. This morning I pray that all of us would have the willingness to step back and say to God, not my will, but your will be done. And may you use me in whatever fashion to bring glory to God. Are you willing to do that today? Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for this continuing story of Joseph and as we've seen so clearly his formative years. I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us to just stop where we are, to get our eyes off our situations, our lives, our responsibilities, all the things that weigh us down. And may we simply turn to you, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who said before the foundation of the world, you marked out works that we should walk in, that before this earth was even created, you knew us, and you knew us in our mother's womb, and you knew where we would be in 2007. Help us to just surrender and let it go to you. And I'm going to thank you in advance for what you're going to do through the hearts and lives of these folks here today. The plans that you've made for us, the plans that you have for us, the life that's already been laid out for us. I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. And we'll give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.